Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. So, I remind you, you are listening to a recording provided by the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read in Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so we start off first with an obituary from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times from Monday, September 4th, 2023. Gerald Stephen Trostler, January 1st, 1938 to August 23rd, 2023, author unknown. Gerald Jerry Stephen Trostler, MD, FACP, passed away on August 23rd, 2023, in Palm Desert at the age of 85. He was a passionate doctor, teacher, photographer, and family man, known for his supportiveness, gentle nature, and unwavering love for his family. He was born on January 1st, 1938, in Brooklyn, New York, to Edward and Elizabeth Stoll Trostler. When he was a small child, his family moved to Los Angeles, where he graduated from Fairfax High School and later UCLA, first 1962. After medical school, he joined the Air Force as a physician and then settled with his wife in Long Beach to raise his family and work with Memorial Medical Group as a treating physician. He simultaneously taught at UC Irvine as an assistant clinical uh, professor of medicine, instructing residents on the basics of cardiology. UC Irvine presented him with an excellent teacher recognition award. He was also a fellow of the American College of Physicians, was recognized as one of Los Angeles County's best internists, and was highlighted in Los Angeles Magazine. He was featured on CBS's 60 Minutes to discuss the difficulties in diagnosing heart attacks. In 2000, he temporarily retired to the desert, but nothing could keep him away from his passion of treating his patients. He returned to the practice of medicine in Palm Desert, from 2005 until 2022. His calm manner, professionalism, and dedication were his hallmarks, when he maintain, which he maintained until the end of his life, greeting the nurses and hospital staff with grace no matter the hour. He had a gift for photography, was an avid bridge player, and enjoyed Bruin football, Angels baseball, and going out to dinner. He was a fan of good to- He excelled at achieving both simultaneously by arranging numerous vacations for the whole family to be together. He challenged everyone to be happy, and he encouraged others to follow a path that led to happiness, whatever that might be. Jerry is survived by his wife, Dorian, and three sons, Matthew Trostler, Mark Michelle Trostler, and Seth Cynthia Trostler, and his four grandchildren, Walter, Evan, Colin, and Meredith. He is survived by a brother, Robert Donna Trostler, and a sister, Flora Trostler, a sister-in-law, Judy Davenport, and a brother-in-law, Dr. Dick Metzner, a niece and nephews. <clears throat> a gravesite service was held at Hillside Memorial Park in Los Angeles on Monday, August 28, 2023. He will be missed by all who were fortunate to have known him, but overall by his wife, whose love for him is eternal. That was Gerald Stephen Trostler, January 1st, 1938 to August 23, 2023, author unknown, from the obituary section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, September 4, 2023. All right, let's go on to this article from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, September 7, 2023. Blinken pushes for continued support of Ukraine. Secretary of State makes the case in an unannounced visit to Kiev as U.S. public backing of war ebbs by Tracy Wilkinson. Washington. 
with U.S. public support for the war in Ukraine sagging as the battle to eject Russian forces moves slowly, America's top diplomat is on a drama-filled mission to reassure doubters and shore up the united front. In an unannounced trip to Kiev, the Ukrainian capital, Secretary of State Anthony J. Blinken on Wednesday acknowledged the critical moment facing Ukraine in fighting Russia and in building a post-war future. But he said he had tremendous confidence that the stakes were too high for Ukraine to fall. As if to underscore the persistent danger, Russian shelling of a market in the uh, eastern city of Kostyanivka killed at least 16 people Wednesday and wounded more than two dozen others, Ukrainian officials said. The Associated Press said its, its reporters saw bodies covered by blankets while emergency workers put out fires along rows of market stalls. And just hours before Blinken arrived in Kiev on an overnight train from Poland, Russian cruise missile strikes uh, on the capital, which uh, had been relatively safe during most of the war, killed at least two people, Ukrainian officials said. The State Department said Blinken's trip is fourth to the Ukraine since the war started and kept from the public until after he reached U uh, Kiev was aimed at assessing the progress of the counteroffensive that Ukraine launched in recent months and determined future needs and plans for reconstruction, energy, humanitarian recovery, and Ukraine's war-torn economy. Coming at a politically sensitive time on both U.S. domestic and international fronts, the timing of the Blinken visit is widely seen as an urgent move to rally support for what has become the unplanned and unwanted centerpiece of the Biden administration's foreign policy. U.S. officials have voiced concern about waning interest and in and opposition to the war that supporters see as necessary to stop an illegal land grab by Russian President Vladimir Putin. We want to make sure that Ukraine has what it needs not only to succeed in the counteroffensive, but has what it needs for the long term to make sure that it has a strong deterrent, Lincoln said before a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. We're also determined to continue to work with our partners as they build and rebuild a strong economy and strong democracy. Blinken on Wednesday announced a billion-dollar package in new U.S. aid, which he said would include training in the U.S. for Ukrainian pilots and the use of F-16 fighter jets. Several European members of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization are promising to donate their fighting jets to Ukraine after receiving Washington's permission to do so. In the U.S., several hardline Republican politicians have questioned continuing aid to Ukraine, which in more than 18 months of fighting totals more than $43 billion in dispersed and promised weaponry, including tanks, air defense systems, and controversial cluster bombs. Biden administration officials insist that those voices are in the minority and that bipartisan support remains strong. Perhaps more important is the decline in the American public's favorable view of Ukraine, according to a CNN poll released last month. 48% of those who responded said the U.S. should do more to stop Russian military actions in Ukraine, while 51% said the U.S. has already done enough. Although that is a fairly even split, another poll conducted by CNN soon after the start of the war last year found that two-thirds of respondents said the U.S. should do more to help Ukraine. The doubts come ahead of the presidential election next year, and with potentially brutal winter in Ukraine looming. In addition to complicating, uh, battle, uh, complicating battlefield maneuvers, a harsh winter could take a significant toll if Russia repeats its tactics of last year 
that included bombarding critical Ukrainian infrastructure, destroying electrical grids and heating systems. There is international urgency as well. The Biden administration hopes to shore up what has been a large but not universal coalition of nations supporting Ukraine. This weekend, leaders of the world's top economies will meet in India with Ukraine said to be a major topic. Russia and sometimes ally uh, in China are represented in the group of 20, and countries, of including, in countries including host India have expressed reservations over supporting Ukraine's war efforts. To get absolute consensus on a statement on Ukraine is challenging, Jake Sullivan, President Biden's national security advisor, said this week. Biden will attend the summit, but neither Putin, who was under indictment by the International Criminal Court for alleged war crimes in Ukraine, nor China's Xi Jinping, will attend. Even more important is the annual General Assembly of the United Nations to be held in New York this month. Although the body last year voted by a large margin to condemn Russia's invasion of its neighbor, some of that solidarity has faded, especially in the so-called Global South countries in Latin America and Africa that have economic or historical ties to Russia or are simply reluctant to get involved in a war that they don't think concerned them. As the wedge potentially widens, Russia is receiving weapons from Iran and seeking military equipment from North Korea, according to U.S. intelligence officials. China, while friendly with the Kremlin, has not yet supplied major weapons uh, to, Moscow, to Moscow, U.S. officials said. We are in that back-to-school phase. Everybody is coming together for the U.N. General Assembly and the Ukrainians have an important mission in New York to continue to explain to their allies and partners around the world what's going on and their continued need for support, said a senior State Department official who briefed reporters traveling with Blinken and spoke anonymously in keeping with department protocols. And it's important for us to continue to lead that global effort to support them. And so having a chance to consult and align before we get to New York is very, very important. Ukraine's highly anticipated counteroffensive got a sluggish start as it tried, often in vain, to punch through a heavily fortified Russian lines, triggering more doubts about the country's ability to prevail over a much larger foe. Confidence was further rattled when Zelensky abruptly fired his defense minister this week. Ukraine had begun to gain has begun to gain some ground in recent weeks, U.S. and British military analysts say, taking back several villages that Russia had seized and breaching a number of Russian defensive positions. Blinken cited those gains in a news conference late Wednesday when asked what he had learned that uh, could convince Americans that this is a battle worth fighting. In the current counteroffensive, we are seeing real progress over the last few weeks, he said. We are doing everything we can to maximize our support for Ukraine as it pursues the counteroffensive. Ukrainians are fighting for their own country, for their own future, for their own freedom. Russians are not. And that gives me tremendous confidence that Ukraine will prevail. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba, who joined Blinken at the news conference, said he believed American politicians across the board understood the war is not just about Ukraine. It's about the future of the world, and we should defend this world jointly, Kuleba said. If the West cannot, cannot win this war, then what is the war that the West can win? Blinken's trip is the first in which he will spend the night in the country. In addition to meeting with officials, he visited a mental health program run by Ukrainian First Lady Olena Zelenska and laid a wreath at the 
Berkovitsky Cemetery in memory of Armed Forces members who died de、uh, defending the country. Blinken and Kaleba later stopped by a McDonald's, held up as, as a symbol of businesses that returned quickly to Kiev after the Russian invasion in a sign of solidarity and resilience. The two men ordered fries. That was Blinken pushes for continued support of Ukraine by Tracy Wilkinson from the World Section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, September 7, 2023. Right, and now we go to this one back in the United States. From the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 8, 2023. Family dispute colors Feinstein's final term. Senator's long polished image is challenged as feud over wealth is aired by Kevin Rector. San Francisco. One of the great political careers in modern American history began in earnest in a singular moment in 1978, when then San Francisco Board of Supervisors President Dianne Feinstein showed fortitude in the face of horror. Announcing that two of her colleagues, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, had been assassinated at City Hall, Feinstein was composed and authoritative, despite having just borne witness to the bloodshed. So clear was her gravatus, all the more striking in an era of rampant misogyny, that she would use the video of herself from that day in later campaign ads. Nearly half a century later, she is 90 years old, frail, and at times forgetful. The strength is less readily apparent. What abounds instead, at least publicly, is a sense of disillusion, not only of a distinguished political career, but of her family's vast fortune and her family itself. Supporters might have hoped、uh, Feinstein's last chapter in power after 30 years in the U.S. Senate would have buttressed her, legend, her legacy as a savvy political power broker. But the long farewell has been far from graceful. She is cloistered away from the public when not being prodded into action for brief votes and is surrounded by a phalanx of defensive aides whenever members of the media approach. In the resulting vacuum of information about the senator's capabilities and coherence, little is known except her evident decline. That has been especially true since Feinstein's frailty became fodder for a family squabble, public for all to see in court filings, over the vast fortune left behind by Feinstein's late husband, Richard Bloom, who died last year. Over the last few months, Feinstein's daughter from a prior marriage, Catherine Feinstein, a former judge who has power of attorney for her mother in legal matters, has repeatedly sued the trustees assigned to manage Bloom's estate, alleging that they have wrongly withheld money owed to her,、uh, owed to her mother for more than a year. The cases suggest financial friction between Catherine Feinstein and her stepsisters, Bloom's three daughters from a prior marriage, who also stand to benefit from his prosperity. At the crux of the litigation is the senator's stated desire to gain more control over assets in various Bloom trusts and over the couple's beach house north of San Francisco. During her long career, Feinstein so meticulously maintained a polished and unflappable public image that journalist and author Jerry Roberts titled his 1994 biography of her, Diane Feinstein Never Let Them See You Cry. Based on a piece of advice the senator once gave to other women in the workplace. Yet now, Feinstein's personal affairs, including her astounding wealth in a, in a city increasingly derided for its economic disparities and homelessness, have come flooding into public view. Sad is exactly the right word for it, Roberts said in a recent interview. Catherine Feinstein, speaking exclusively with the Times, said it had been 
very emotional. I want my mom to have the most comfortable <clears throat> life she can have, which I believe her husband would have wanted for her, she said. I absolutely think she deserves relief from the court. Do I wish it were in the public view? Of course not. Most Americans are familiar with the tough decisions that can arise when a loved one dies. Few know the sort of wealth being fought over in Feinstein's case. Her fortune not only helped forge and sustain her na national political career, filling her campaign coffers at key moments, but allowed her life in public service to be appointed lavishly with jets, jewelry, and mansions. Catherine Feinstein has claimed in court filings that millions of dollars owed to her mother from the Bloom estate have not been dispersed quickly enough, and that her mother needs the money now to pay mounting medical bills. Feinstein was hospitalized earlier this year with shingles and also suffered from encephalitis, a swelling of the brain. She continues to need care. Her daughter alleges that in addition to being denied cash payments to the tune of $1.5 million a year as articulated in one of the trusts, Feinstein has been unfairly blocked from selling a multi-million dollar second home she and Bloom shared in a gated community in Stinson Beach, a coveted enclave of waterfront homes north of San Francisco. Instead, Catherine Feinstein has argued in court filings her mother has been forced to pay upkeep on the on the home, which she no longer uses, and wants to sell now to take advantage of the prime selling season for such properties. In her interview with the Times, the younger Feinstein said her mother hasn't been to the Stinson Beach house in several years, has said she will never go there without her late husband, and should be able to sell it. Eight, alleging, alleging that the trustees appointed by Bloom are acting in bad faith and failing to fulfill their fiduciary duties, Catherine Feinstein has demanded that they be removed and that more power over the assets be consolidated with her in one, in one instance and with new trustees appointed by the court in another. According to the trustees, the suggestion that California's senior senator is strapped for cash because of medical expenses is bogus. In a court filing last week, they said Feinstein first reached out to them in June to demand reimbursement for about $169,000 in medical costs, plus trust payments to cover the $9,166 monthly salary of her security guard and caretaker moving forward. The trustees said they had been in the process of assessing Feinstein's need for such payments in light of her existing income and means of support, as required by the terms of the trust when her daughter began filling petitions, filing petitions against them in court. As part of their assessment, they said they had determined that the senator has an annual income of about a million dollars and a net worth of at least 50 million. Feinstein's exact net worth is unclear, and her daughter said it is not as large as some estimates have made, out, made it out to be. Still, it is clearly substantial. When in San Francisco, the senator lives in a three-story mansion on the famous Lion Street steps and on the edge of the Presidio. It has swept views of the city and surrounding bay and has been formally assessed at more than $21 million. When in Washington, Feinstein lives in another grand home assessed at about $7.4 million near the campus of American University. In addition to those primary residences, <coughs> Feinstein has a condominium worth millions on the island, island of Kauai, Hawaii, and in the vacation home in Stinson Beach, 
which features a stunning deck overlooking the Bolinas Lagoon and is also worth millions. Environmentalists have criticized Feinstein in the past for flying around the country in her husband's Gulfstream jet, and the trustees have alleged in the recent litigation that she has slowed their work by not allowing her jewelry collection to be assessed. The Senate is a club of millionaires, and she is routinely estimated to be among its richest members. Putting Bloom's substantial wealth aside, she is rich in her own right. As a senator, Feinstein earns a salary of $174,000, and she has a San Francisco pension of nearly $68,000 a year. According to court filings, she has also been receiving disbursements since Bloom's death of $125,000 per quarter, or $500,000 a year from a separate marital trust. According to Feinstein's most recent Senate financial disclosure report, fi uh, filed in May, she, has, she also has various other income sources, including interest on cash holdings in bank accounts. Feinstein lists a blind trust of her own as being worth $5 million to $25 million, bank accounts containing $6 million to $30 million, and a pension plan worth between $500,000 and $1 million. She has substantial uh, income from interest on those assets and from renting out the Kauai condo. As a sitting senator, she also has relatively strong health insurance to help cover her medical costs, not to mention access to congressional physicians in Washington. Catherine Feinstein said in her interview with the Times that if the trustees had simply reimbursed her mother's medical costs as the first requ requested as first requested in June, this litigation would never have started. She said Bloom was fully aware of her mother's independent finances before his death and had nonetheless explicitly stated in his trust that disbursements should be made to her to ensure her medical needs were met. She also said her mother is fully aware of the litigation and has trusted her to represent her interests in California, including as she heads back to Washington to work. Many have questioned the senator's ability to carry out her Senate duties, citing her record of missing votes and her apparent confusion during recent hearings and in brief conversations with reporters but her daughter said Feinstein remains productive and engaged. Every single day, she goes through all her staff memos and makes notes on them and either signs off on them or sends them back for changes and additional details, she said. My mother is so driven for work. I wish I could express that. She was born to work. She has always worked. That's what she wants to do. She wants to go back to the Senate and work, her daughter said. I'll take care of this in California, she said of the trust litigation. Catherine Feinstein declined to answer additional questions from the Times, including about her mother's health and finances. The San Francisco Chronicle reported Wednesday that the senator confirmed she had asked her daughter to handle the legal matters after first saying she had not given her permission to do anything. The Feinsteins are not suing the three Blum daughters, but they are impl implicated by extension as beneficiaries of the trust, and their rights must also be considered by the trustees. Bloom's daughters declined to comment, as did their lawyers. Feinstein's Senate office declined to make the senator available and answered a list of specific questions about the trust litigation and the senator's help with a, sh a short statement that she would not be commenting because there were private financial and family matters that are not related to Senator Feinstein's official duties. Bloom's trustees declined to comment to the Times, but have been fighting back. 
In a court filing last week, the accused Catherine Feinstein of trying to create a media spectacle by falsely claiming they had denied her mother's medical needs. They also questioned how a sitting U.S. senator supposedly has the capability to appoint a trustee, yet seemingly cannot file the resulting litigation in her own name. The trustee's lawyers have denied any bad faith on the trustee's part of uh, in handling Bloom's estate, which they have said is extremely complex, heavily tied up investments, and difficult to wind down quickly. The trustees have acted ethically and appropriately at all times. The same cannot be said for Catherine Feinstein, attorney Stephen P. Braccini wrote in a statement. This filing is unconscionable. The trustees have always respected Senator Feinstein and always will. But this has nothing to do with their needs and everything to do with their daughter's avarice. A hearing on several of Feinstein's claims against the trustees is set for Monday before a judge out of San Luis Obispo according to court filings. Judges in San Francisco, where Catherine Feinstein was on the bench, have recused themselves. Ruling in the, rulings in the matter probably won't be forthcoming for some time. Meanwhile, the battle over Bloom's trust is feeding into, into and becoming intertwined with a broader debate around the senator's frailty, which has become an important political matter, not just for Feinstein's personal legacy, but for the country. A native of San Francisco, born in 1933, Feinstein grew up with two younger sisters under a loving father who was a successful doctor and an abusive mother. She attended private schools, Catholic ones despite being Jewish and rode horses for recreation. She graduated from Stanford University in 1955, married Jack Berman, Catherine's father, in 1956 and divorced him in 1959. In 1962, she married the man whose name she and her daughter would take and keep, neurosurgeon Bertram Feinstein. In a video from a local television interview after her first election to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors in 1969, the family of three is seen eating breakfast at home as a domestic employee in an apron serves coffee. The television reporter discusses the couple's art collections, including one of the centuries-old Chinese glazed pottery. Dr. Feinstein died in 1978. Seven months later, Moscone and Milk were slain, and Diane Feinstein became mayor. In 1980, she married Bloom, a fellow native of San Francisco and an investor with an equity management firm and three daughters. Feinstein served as San Francisco mayor until 1988 and ran unsuccessfully for California governor in 1990. Bloom helped bankroll her political aspirations and campaigns along the way, raising questions about his business connections and whether they represented any conflicts of interest for his political aspirational wife, who, in 1992, won the Senate seat she holds to this day. Throughout her career, Feinstein has been a centrist Democrat whose positions don't fit into a neat political box. She has championed some liberal causes, such as LGBTQ plus rights and gun control, but has bucked the Democratic Party by challenging the Obama administration to publish details on brutal CIA detention and interrogation methods in the post-9-11 era. And by taking what many viewed as a conciliatory approach to confirmation hearings for President Trump's conservative U.S. Supreme Court nominees. No one can argue that Feinstein has been anything but a woman of her own mind. She has ruffled feathers and held strong convictions but has been known for hashing out differences in private rather than public. Slightly formal in style, 
She adheres faithfully to procedure and protocol. She believes in settling disputes privately and by argument rather than by force. Longtime uh, New York staff writer Connie Brook wrote in a 2015 piece about Feinstein. Even in, in less momentous situations, she is a dogged negotiator. What is left of that famous fortitude is unclear, and that matters politically. Among other things, Feinstein sits on the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee, which approves federal judges put forward by the president. The committee is currently split with 11 Democrats to 10 Republicans. Were Feinstein to resign, Republicans have said they would block the appointment of a Democratic replacement before the next election, leading to a 10-10 stalemate on the committee and disrupting President Biden's ability to appoint judges. There would be a lot of pressure on Republicans to stick with the team, and the argument would be, we don't want to do anything to let Biden judges get confirmed, said UC Berkeley political scientist Eric Schickler. It is impossible for most people to separate Feinstein the person from Feinstein the politician. At times it was too hard for her to do, to do too. Political politics and family were always interwoven in the Feinstein household. Catherine Feinstein has not been shy about the fact that her mother's career was a strain on their relationship when she was young, but has said they became closer in more, most recent years. More recent years. Probably as a teenager, I was the most resentful of my mother not being like every other mother that I knew at that time, Catherine Feinstein said in a 2014 NBC interview alongside her mother. As time has gone on, I think we've gotten closer and closer to the point where no one thinks we are as funny as the other. We spend a lot of really good time just the two of us doing very mundane, regular things that we enjoy immensely. Catherine Feinstein and her husband, Rick Mariano, have benefited from generosity on the part of Bloom and her mother in the past and have successful careers of their own. They live in a San Francisco home assessed at more than $3.6 million. Feinstein's relationship with her stepdaughters is less than clear, though was, uh, though was reportedly ple uh, present, pleasant. Based on court filings, it appears each of the Bloom sisters had been lent millions of dollars by their father and stand of those loans forgiven, plus millions more given to them when their father's trusts are dispersed. They own expensive properties from Santa Monica to Switzerland. Little is known publicly about the relationship between Catherine Feinstein and the Bloom sisters, but experts in trusts and grants said the legal filings in the trust dispute do not suggest a pleasant relationship. James Creighton, a longtime trust lawyer in California who was not involved in the case, said the apparent lack of communication between the parties outside court before the litigation was filled was filed uh, was telling. Better communication, he said, could have gone a long way toward resolving this issue, which now has spilled across the national papers in a way that is very embarrassing to all parties. That was Family Dispute Colors Feinstein's Final Term by Kevin Rector. From the Los Angeles Times, Friday, September 8, 2023. Time staff writer Benjamin Oreskes contributed to this report. All right, now here's something from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, September 6, 2023. Lame Jewish people? He can only blame himself. By Michael Hiltzik. Elon Musk has, known, has long been known for blaming everyone but himself for various fiascos uh, visited upon his companies. Middlesome, middlesome bureaucrats for COVID-related production, production slowdowns at Tesla, the Pentagon, 
and conniving rivals for the loss of a government contract by SpaceX, nasty woke advertisers for the decline of X, X Twitter. So what were the chances that he would get around to blaming the Jews based on the evidence? 100%. Based on the evidence at hand, 100%. Over the weekend, Musk launched a ferocious, spittle-flecked attack on the Anti-Defamation League, which described itself accurately enough as a global leader in combating anti-Semitism, countering extremism, and battling bigotry wherever and whenever it happens. Musk decided that the ADL is responsible for, in his words, most of our revenue loss at X, giving them maximum benefit of the doubt. I don't see any scenario where they've where they're responsible for less than 10% of the value destruction, so $4 billion. He asserted that the U.S. advertising revenue at X is down 60%, primarily due to pressure on advertisers by at ADL, that's what advertisers tell us, so that they almost succeeded in killing X Twitter. And he tweeted that he has no choice but to file a defamation lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League. Not to put a fine point on th- on things, but all this shows Musk has Musk to have gone utterly off the rails and over the edge of conspiracy mongering paranoia. It's the almost extreme outburst of anti-Semitism by a perfectly mainstream public figure in more than a hundred years. Musk's hate spasm easily outflanks the previous champion of public anti-Semitism, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who was caught on tape in July arguing that COVID-19 was targeted to attack Caucasians and black people while leaving Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese relatively immune. It's as if Musk challenged Kennedy's efforts to seize the anti-Semitism crown by saying, oh yeah, watch this. Musk's outburst makes the position of Linda Yaccarino, the formerly uh, formerly respected entertainment executive who accepted the job of X's CEO, to restore the platform to the good graces of corporate advertisers hopelessly unattainable. Why doesn't why she doesn't resign is a mystery. His words should also prompt the federal government to question his suitability and that of his company SpaceX to hold uh, government out contracts of any kind. Musk has bought into the notion, advanced by openly anti-Semitic X accounts, that the ADL fosters anti-Semitism by calling it out wherever it appears at. The ADL, because they are so aggressive in their demands to ban social media accounts for even minor infractions, are ironically the biggest generators of anti-Semitism on this platform, he tweeted on Sunday. He was responding to a tweet quoting the far-right conspiracy monger Alex Jones, calling the ADL the most pro-Hitler organization I've ever seen. He further implied that the ADL is somehow complicit in creating the very thing they complain about. Musk implicitly endorsed the hashtag uh, ban the ADL, advocating banning the organization from X by replying, perhaps we should run a poll on this. Surely he knows that his right-wing followers would swamp any such poll on the yes side. It's crystal clear that X's revenue problem is Elon Musk and his policies. He has welcomed dispensers of anti-Semitism, racism, and other varieties of hate speech back onto the platform while amplifying misinformation about perpetrated COVID treatments and homophobic slurs retailed by conspiracy movements such as QAnon. 
Corporate advertisers in the consumer market don't need the ADL to tell them that it's bad for their brands to be associated with a social media platform bristling with neo-Nazi and other denizens of the cultural underworld. It's true that the ADL has had its eyes on Musk and X for some time. That's because the platform's content moderation policies have fostered a documented surge of hate speech since Musk acquired it last October. In March, the ADL reported that Twitter had refused to remove tweets or accounts that incited violence against Jews. Two months later, it followed up with a report that Musk's decision to reinstate 85, no, 65 Twitter accounts that had previously been banned for hate speech had contributed to the anti-Semitism surge. The tweet and reply threads of many of these accounts, the ADL found, had become magnets for vile anti-Semitic content. They were rife with such familiar anti-Semitic tropes as conspiracy theories about George Soros and the Rothschild banking family controlling global politics, finance, and media, and accusations that Jews are aiming to destroy the West by promoting transgender identities and lifestyles and replacing white people via immigration, e.g. the Great Replacement. Tellingly, Beyond stating his determination to clear our platform's name on the matter of anti-Semitism and declaring, I'm pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind. Musk has made Musk in his weekend outburst made no effort to address the specific points raised by the ADL. He merely asserted that the organization's accusations were unfounded. Obviously, that won't do. According to ADL Chief Executive Jonathan Greenblatt, Yakarina reached out to him last month, leading to a frank plus positive conversation about at X, what works and what doesn't, and where it needs to go to address hate effectively on the platform, he tweeted. Anya will give her and Elon Musk credit if this service gets better and reserve the right to call them out until it does, Greenblatt added. Late Tuesday, however, the ADL issued a further statement. Citing Musk's weekend outburst about his cozying up to neo-Nazis, the organization said Musk is engaging with and elevating these anti-Semites at a time when ADL is tracking a surge of bomb threats and swatting attacks of synagogues and Jewish institutions, dramatic levels of anti-Semitic propaganda being littered throughout Jewish and non-Jewish residential communities, and extremists marching openly through the streets in Nazi gear. All of this is happening in a context of the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents that ADL has tracked in more than 40 years, and just two weeks away from the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. The ADL added, this behavior is not just alarming nor reckless. It is flat-out dangerous and deeply irresponsible. We need responsible leaders to lead, to stop inflaming hatred, and to step back from the brink before it's too late. There are few precedents in American history for someone with the public renown uh, of Elon Musk voicing or hosting opinions of such unalloyed virulence. The closest analog is probably Henry Ford, who in 1920 began publishing screens in the Dearborn Independent, a local weekly he had acquired, alleging the existence of a vast Jewish conspiracy to achieve world domination. Musk is sometimes compared to the innovator Henry Ford, John Marshall observed, observed Tuesday on his website, Talking Points Memo. The, comparisons seem, the comparison seems increasingly apt, if not in the way many have intended. That was Blame Jewish People 
He Can Only Blame Himself by Michael Hiltzek from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, September 6, 2023. Hiltzek writes a blog on latimes.com. Follow him on Facebook or on Twitter at HiltzekM or email michael.hiltzek at latimes.com. All right, let's move on to some entertainment news now. We go on to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. Midwest Princess, a pop star in the making by August Brown. On a searing August afternoon, Chapo Roan sidled up to her favorite bar in L.A., Bigfoot Lodge in Atwater Village. It looks just like a Bass Pro Shop, says Roan, 25, admiring the worn wood paneling and Sasquatch paraphernalia. The original pro shop was in my hometown in Missouri. It was incredible. Whenever I see Bass Pro hats in LA, I'm like, do you not know about that? It's hard to imagine a better queer girl bona fides than longing for your hometown fishing supply store when you're about to release one of the year's most exuberant dance pop albums. But the rise and fall of a Midwest princess, Roan's debut LP out September 22nd, comes after years in the L.A. music trenches and a humbling return home after getting dropped by her label. Now with an assist from Olivia Rodrigo's producer Dan Negro, N-I-G-R-O, and a groundswell of Gen Z affection for campy dance rappers like Hot To Go and Naked in Manhattan, Rowan can finally afford to buy any Yeti cooler she likes. I was so close to giving up. If I wasn't going to do music, then I would probably just go back home and be an aesthetician and a drag queen, Rowan said. When you've been poor, you're not really scared of anything. Rowan's drag queen illusions aren't too far off fail. Chapel Rowan is kind of a heightened character version of the singer born Kaylee Amstutz and raised outside Springfield, Missouri. With cascading auburn hair and a voice that goes from fetchingly tender to absolutely howling, Roan exudes the small-town theater kid energy that drives so many to try their luck in L.A. Signed to Atlantic Records as a, as a teen, Roan moved to L.A. in 2018 and took a crack at a at sober singer-songwriter sober singer fair. It didn't resonate, and Atlantic cut her loose. When the pandemic hit, she was serving coffee in Willard, Missouri, wondering whether she still wanted to do music at all. In fall 2020, she gave herself one more shot and returned to L.A., working in a donut shop and as a production assistant on a TV series. She found inspiration in the grimy, dreamy fantasy lives of her peers. Pink Pony Club is a vampy stripper character study worthy of Warren Zevon that she rode after a long night at the Abbey in West Hollywood. I can't ignore the crazy visions of me in L.A. she sings on it, I heard that there, there's a special place where boys and girls can all be queens. She loves taking back campy things like Bratz dolls and Y2K aesthetics, said Jackie Zhao, who directed the cheerleader romp video for Hot To Go. She's this heightened version of a badass pop star you can feel like when you're at a Goodwill in Missouri. That's a, that set a template for Roan, now a little tawdry, self-aware, over-the-top, yet piercingly vulnerable. With, Ni- with Negro, she carved out a version of herself as a pop diva who arrived and went straight to reclaimed gay icon status. I hadn't heard her, but I went for her headline show at Bowery Ballroom a year ago, said Justin Eshak, 
co-executive of Island Records, where Rowan is now signed. The place was mobbed, but it was so different from things that just had a viral moment. This felt old school in a way that was rooted in a subculture where everyone there seemed like they were in on something. Many songs on Rise and Fall have circulated online for a few years. But Casual, a bracingly candid ballad about a wishy-washy hookup, made the rounds on 2022 Best of Lists. With its eyebrow-raising hook about receiving oral sex in a car, Casual packs three different bridges and Alanis-worthy vengeance into less than four minutes. Lines like, It's hard being casual when my favorite bra lives in your dresser. It's hard being casual when I'm on the phone talking down your sister linger much longer. When I was, I was telling Dan Nigro, I can't do this, my mom is going to kill me, Rowan said. She hates the song, but it's okay. Meanwhile, Rowan was wrestling with the sense that she actually belonged in queer culture all along. Red Wine Supernova and Naked in Manhattan singles now collected on Rise and Fall were wish casting for her first gay crush. I've never done it, she said. She sings on Naked in Manhattan. Let's make it cinematic, like the one sex scene that's in Mulholland Drive. I was dating a boy then, Rowan said. I had never even kissed a girl when these songs were written. It was all what I wished my life could be. Rowan is now comfortably out, dealing with typical young queer anxieties. She's dating a woman, but she's closeted, Rowan said. It sucks. I feel scared kissing her in public. Even though I'm in L.A., homophobia is, the back, is in the back of my head. It's liberating, but there's a new set of problems that I didn't know existed. Fame may soon be another complicated factor. In the run-up to Rise and Fall, Rowan sold, sold out two nights at the 1800-capacity New York venue, Brooklyn Steel, and she will headline the Wiltern on November 14th. Hot to Go, a relentlessly chantable single about hooking up and loving it for once, could join Troy Sivan's Rush and Kylie Minogue's uh, Padam Padam on Pride playlist to come. For Roan, who recruits local drag queens as opening acts on her tour dates, that would be an ideal outcome. It's almost like the gays right now have the undertones of punk, Roan said. We have no problem making it art. We have no problem making art that's almost obnoxiously gay. That was Midwest Princess, a pop star in the making by August Brown from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. And from the same calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 3rd, 2023, a few little excerpts from the fall preview, fall 2023 preview picks and can't miss albums, concerts, and reads. From a young pop queen's much-anticipated and much louder sophisticated album to a final tongue waggle from Hard Rock's master showman from the debut of a $2 billion orb in Las Vegas to the return to movie theaters of arguably the greatest concert film ever made, Fall promises thrills for multiple generations of music fans. So there are a few, uh, few of uh, Jewish entertainers who do stand out, like this one on October 5th. Pink at SoFi Stadium. Come for her 2023 dance pop album, Trust Fall, and enduring number one hits like So What and Raise Your Glass. Stay for the high-flying aerobatics she catapults through your through the air to your favorite song by KD. And this one, November 2nd, Doja Cat, Crypto.com Arena. In the last months, 
Doja Cat has been speaking out about her career with an almost reckless candor, lambasting her fans who call themselves kittens, and saying her multi-platinum albums, Planet Her and Hot Pink, were artless cash grabs. But despite the backlash that followed the remarks, she had little trouble selling out Crypto.com months in advance. That's also by KD. And then on November 3rd, Kiss, Hollywood Bowl. Gene Simmons of Paul Stanley have sworn that Kiss's current world tour comprises the influential glam rock band's absolutely final shows. A promise believable by anyone other than fans who have been buying tickets for farewell concerts since 2000. The end of the road tour, as the group is calling this jump, will hit the ball about a month before it reaches New York's Madison Square Garden, where members say they'll finally hang it up 10 blocks and 50 years from where we first started. By M.W. And those are all from the Can't Miss Albums, Concerts, and Reads uh, from the Fall, Pre Fall 2023 Preview Picks section of the Los Angeles Times Calendar, Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. And also from the Calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 3rd, 2023, this is called Westwood's Crest Boldly Revived as UCLA's Nimoy by Jessica Gelt. On 1987, the hit comedy Three Men and a Baby premiered at the Art Deco Crest Theater in Westwood. The film was directed by Leonard Nimoy and it became the highest grossing movie of that year, ranking in more than $167 million. The film was a massive professional success for the Star Trek star and the Crest has since retained a special importance to the Nimoy family, says Nimoy's widow, Susan. Decades later, when UCLA Center for the Shutter Theater Susan realized it presented a unique opportunity. In September, the Crest will reopen as the UCLA Nimoy Theater and will be used as a home base for CAP UCLA's eclectic interdisciplinary performing arts programming. Those behind the 300-seat venue hope it will soon become a crucial part of LA's vibrant, although still pandemic-challenged, live arts landscape. Leonard was very much in touch with his good fortune, said Susan, during a recent phone conversation. They often spoke about wanting to give back and wanting to make an impact. As an actor, Susan says, Leonard was incredibly invested in the stage. It was almost as if he did film and television just so he could spend six months or a year doing a play, she added. His love of live performance and his dedication to social justice, Susan says, aligns with, C with CAP UCLA's mission to present work by eclectic artists representing a diversity of voices and ideas in theater, music, dance, and literature, as well as digital media and other novel formats. CIP UCLA's co-interim directors, Fred Frumberg and Meryl Friedman, have played a pivotal role in the extensive renovation of the theater since UCLA purchased it in 2018. They also programmed its uh, inaugural season, which kicks off on September 23rd, with Grammy Award-winning poet, spoken word artist, and songwriter, Jay Ivey. Frumberg and Freeman say the state-of-the-art venue represents the intimate scale that CAP UCLA has long, longed for but never had. The kind of space that will allow it to truly experiment and take chances on artists who might not be able to pack an 1,800-seat venue like Lucy, UCLA's Royce Hall, CIP's long-term home on the university's campus. It's not that the 200 people, the 200 people sitting in an 1800 seat are not affected the same way, but it's a really hard hump to get over. And here, you don't have to get over it. 
That's not a factor, said Friedman of the Nimoy. It's intimate. It represents a different scale of success. It's also less costly to program smaller shows for smaller audiences, a point of paramount concern in the post-COVID arts world where many performing arts groups are suffering. Audiences are not attending live performance in the numbers that they were before the pandemic. We're responding to a very different financial climate, said Frumberg, adding that there is simply no way he can imagine doing 50 shows at Royce Hall right now. That number was once the norm, but it has dropped to seven post-pandemic. With the Nemo, however, Frumberg and Friedman have said have been able to put 50 shows on the schedule. The only reason that we can do this many shows is because of the very nature of the shows, he says. There are lower fees, fewer hotel rooms, lower production costs, less crew. It responds to what we should be doing right now until we figure out what lies ahead on the other side of COVID. Nobody knows what that will be, of course, but Fromberg and Freeman believe that gripping evocative art that unites audiences through a shared experience represents the path forward. What makes people want to gather now for a live event if you're not Beyonce or Taylor Swift, asks Freeman. How do you form that? How do you form community? What is it that makes people want to sit in a room with strangers and experience something together? And how far in advance do they make that decision? It has to be financially accessible and community-based, and it has to speak to what people want to hear. It also has to give joy, she says. CAP UCLA hopes to check all those boxes at the Nimoy. Future seasons will be programmed with the help of new artistic director Edgar Miramontes, who started in the position in August. He took over for he took over from longtime leader Christy Edmonds, who left in 2001 to head the Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. Miramontes immigrated to LA from Mexico at age eight and has a long history of advocacy and leadership in the arts, including his most recent position as Deputy Executive Director and Curator for the Roy and Edna Disney Cal Arts Theater, better known as Red Cat. It was Edmonds who first lobbied UCLA to buy the crest, and now Miramontes will help shape its vision. Friedman says she is hugely excited to work with Miramontes and to witness the transformation of the crest. After opening in 1940 as a live performance space, it has multiple incarnations as a movie theater. In 2008, the city of Los Angeles designated it as a landmark, but it has struggled to find an identity since, since then and also has lain dormant for long stretches of time. Susan Nimoy hopes the Nimoy Theater will further enliven the neighborhood and catalyze growth in nearby restaurants, museums, and entertainment venues. She also says there are huge advantages to having a university venue off campus. Fromberg and Friedman agree. It, it is easier to get to and easier to park at the Nimoy than it is on campus, but it also signals that the university is invested in the city. And with $35, tickets and $35 tickets and $15 student tickets, it should be reasonably priced, uh, reasonably priced night out. It has a certain kind of accessibility and a community visibility than that being on campus doesn't have, says Friedman. It's sometimes hard to be friendly behind the edifice of the ivory tower. Coming to an art event, she says, should not be a privileged activity. The Nimoy aims to prove it. Find the Nimoy full season lineup at cap.ucla.edu.
westwoodscrest.edu/calendar. That's Westwood's Crest Boldly Revived as UCLA's Nimoy by Jessica Gelt from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. We go on now to this one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. She grew up with drama. Now she'd like to be funny. Director Rebecca Miller on a new rom-com and her famous dad by Tim Grierson. It's been six years since writer-director Rebecca Miller's last feature, an HBO documentary about her famous father, the late playwright Arthur Miller, and another two years since her previous fiction film, 2015's Maggie Plan, Maggie's Plan, starring a pre-Lady Bird Greta Gerwig. So in Miller's new movie, the wistful, delightfully unstable romantic comedy She Came to Me, opening September 29, premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, some in the press described it as her comeback. But that's not how she perceives things. I'm just plodding along, Miller said over Zoom from her office in New York. It takes quite a long time to get an independent film together, so I suppose it can feel like something's just been swallowed up by quicksand. But in reality, what they're doing is creating a film that the producers are trying to find, uh, are trying to find the money, and then we had the pandemic. And during that time, I was also working on a book of short stories. So from my point of view, I'm just putting one foot in front of the other. Based on her own brief sketch about a novelist suffering writer's block, she came to me, expands Miller's premise, and changes the main character's profession. Peter Dinklage plays Stephen, a creatively stymied New York composer struggling to complete his latest opera. His cerebral psychiatrist wife, Patricia Ann Hathaway, suggests he go for a walk to clear his head, an outing that will append his, li his life once he meets Katrina, Marissa Tomei, a blunt, horny tugboat captain. She came to me, boldly com combines the screwball comedy and the existential drama, sharing with Maggie's plan a growing interest in using humor to tackle life's greatest great mysteries after focusing on more somber fare in 2002's Personal Velocity and 2005's The Ballad of Jack and Rose, the latter starring her husband, the actor Daniel Day-Lewis. Miller, who turned 61 in mid-September, finds it amusing that her audiences might be thrown by her shift toward comedy. When I made Maggie's plan, everyone was like, but she's not funny, she says laughing. But I'm like, how do you know I'm not funny? I just haven't been showing that part of myself as much. The older I get, the more I feel that looking at sad things through a lighter lens is hard. It's very difficult to keep the bubbles of the souffle up. Still, Miller owes, a, owes up to a tide shift in her thinking. It's a, for, it's a forgiving way of looking at life, she says, of comedy, which I find very, very attractive, especially right now. It's not pretending that nothing terrible happens. <clears throat> it's that you choose to look at the absurdity and the humor of life and embrace it. Her characters may be more amusingly flawed than before, but they, are, but they share with her earlier creations a soulful introspection and unbridled wanderlust a desire to break free, and an uncertainty about whether true freedom is possible. Miller talked to the Times about her feelings about AI, her friendship with Gerwig, and the long shadow of her dad's legacy. This interview has been edited for length and clarity. Question. I love that your characters never behave like movie characters. They meander down their own paths, not worrying about conforming to a straightforward plot. That's especially true with She Came to Me. Answer. 
Once a character has popped into my head and I've decided to write about them, I have an obligation to honor them and to make them complete. I really do believe that if you put enough love and psychic energy into a character, they do start to generate their own destiny. I remember showing my husband in the, fir the first 20 pages of this. It was like, oh my God, good luck, laughs. There were so many balls in the air. It was like, how are you going to land this? That's part of the challenge. Question. Not the easiest thing to hear from Daniel Day-Lewis. Were, were you tired of working in a more serious vein? Answer. I think that it is part of it. But also, even in The Ballad of Jack and Rose, which is a very lyrical film and has a lot of wistfulness, there are funny sequences. I remember seeing, sitting in that screening of Jack and Rose and thinking, gosh, I love it when people laugh. Even though it was a sad movie and everyone was, so, was sobbing, the parts where people laugh were so wonderful to be a part of. I thought, what about changing the ratio? Question. We're in the middle of the WGA and SAG Astra strikes. Are you concerned about the AI's encroaching influence? Answer. All the demands of the Writers Guild are very legitimate. I write, I would, I would be very surprised if AI could write she came to me. There, there would have had to be, to be something terribly wrong with that computer. I believe that it's all the more reason to write original work. Stay a step ahead of AI. Question. You write films, novels, and short stories, but not plays. Is that because of your father? Definitely. Answer. Definitely. I would love to direct theater, produ uh, produce theater. I think theater is a wonderful art and, in fact, very relevant for our future, the more AI stands over us. Seeing a person actually sweat and cry right in front of you, actually feel things, is very powerful. I've always felt writing plays would be would just be too much. I've had enough to just make something of myself under that shadow that I wouldn't invite more difficulty on myself. Question. In, the, in between these last two narrative features, you made a documentary about your dad, Arthur Miller, writer. Sometimes completing a project like that can make someone feel like they're losing the person all over again. Was that true for you? Answer. I actually felt very freed by the process. After we finished the film, I was finally, uh, was finally able to sell the house that I had grown up in. It was not the right house for me, but I couldn't bring myself to do it. But I felt that now the house had been kind of memorialized. It was also about me understanding and coming to terms with him more as a man. I almost feel that everyone, everybody should, be, should make a documentary about their parents, no matter who they are even if it's 20 minutes long, because it makes you think about them in a way that isn't just as their child. It doesn't matter how old you are, you're still your parent's child. Question. Because your father was so famous, he sometimes pops up as a character in movies. Recently, Adrian Brody portrayed him in Blonde. How do you think he did? Answer. Inevitably, anybody who plays anybody's father, the child is going to say that that's not fully the person. I do think Adrian did a really good job. I personally feel that Marilyn had been dragged around enough and making stuff up about her isn't fair. Question. I feel like you're not asked a, uh, as often about your mother, Inga Morath, who was a photographer. What did she give you? Question. Her talking to me about the power of com composition was huge. We would take, she would take me to museums. We would look at her own work and other people's photography. <clears throat> She had enormous self-discipline, and I think that's, be that's best transmitted by example. 
Also, she was a very non-narcissistic artist. She was a very generous mother, and I think that was a great gift to me, and something that I hope I have continued with my own kids. Question. You were a mentor to Greta Gerwig in terms of encouraging her to pursue a directing career. Obviously, she's having an amazing year. Answer. She's a dear friend of mine. I'm so happy for her and just so loving what she's doing. She said that when she made Ladybird, that uh, that watching me direct Maggie's plan inspired her to say, okay, I'm going to direct my own film. We have many things in common, me and Greta. Question. What do you have in common? Answer. A humorous way of looking at the world. We each have two sons and also a stepson. There were little things. I remember once we were on the set of Maggie's plan and my bra strap was showing and she said, oh my God, I even have the same bra. Laughed. Question. I know you don't perceive she came to me as a comeback, but I do think the film's characters are, in a sense, trying to create new selves. Is that a theme that resonates with you? Answer. I think they are, they're, they're all making a bid for freedom in completely different ways. Everybody creates an identity and we feel locked in that we feel locked into. We judge ourselves and we decide it's over. I'm a baked cake. I can't change anymore. But the truth is that people can radically change their lives. And I think that, it, that that's a really important point. It doesn't matter if you're 40 or 50 years old. You can change your life in a, and in a way that maybe reflects who you are better. Question. How have you changed? Answer. I was completely undomesticated. I mean, I lived with a bare bulb in the ceiling and a few chairs, and I only thought about making work, and that was it. I had relationships, but the idea that I would be taking care of other people was radically different from how I was. Then I chose a man to marry, had children, and embraced another life. Now my children are grown up, and I don't really know. I stand at the precipice. I'm very happy to embrace adventures. I think it's important to be awake and just to stay alive because the temptation to die on the vine and still be alive but secretly dead is pretty intense. That was She Grew Up With Drama, Now She'd Like To Be Funny by Tim Grierson from the perspective, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, September 3rd, 2023. All right, we got this final one here from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 8th, 2023. What came after August? As Counting Crows celebrate 30 years of their platinum debut, Adam Duritz Reflects by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. In September 1993, Adam Duritz and his Bay Area folk rock band Counting Crows released their debut album, August and Everything After, which went on to sell 7 million copies, spawned an inescapable radio smash in Mr. Jones, and turned dreadlocked Duritz into one of Hollywood's most enthusiastic daters of actors, including, as the story goes, two Friends cast members in Jennifer Aniston and Courtney Cox. Three decades later, Duritz is still attracting famous and beautiful women. On a recent evening, Counting Crows played to a full house at the Troubadour as a means of drumming up excitement for a North American tour that circled back to Inglewood's YouTube theater for a show Wednesday night. Among those gathered to hear Mr. Jones, a long December, round here, and the rest was Cindy Crawford, whom the next morning Duritz insisted he doesn't actually know. A million people came backstage and said, Cindy Crawford's at your show. 
the singer 59 recalled with a laugh in an interview at his West Hollywood hotel, I was like, huh, cool. For the current tour, the county grows with a lineup of original members, longtime players, and newer recruits are joined by the veteran emo act Dashboard Confessional, whose Chris Caraba has become a close friend of Duritz's in New York, where they both live. In May, Duritz and his girlfriend, filmmaker Zoe Mintz, went to see Taylor Swift's Eras Tour at New Jersey's MetLife Stadium with Caraba and his wife. Duritz's verdict? I was floored, he said. Question. You sound surprised. Answer. Chris knows her really well, and I was a big fan when she started, but I hadn't listened to her for about 10 years. My girlfriend is obsessed, and she got us tickets, and she made me a playlist. I couldn't believe how good the folklore and Evermore stuff was. A lot of big shows don't interest me because it just seems like it's people plus dancers plus whatever. But this was a woke a work of art. Like some some combination of broad, Broadway show and universal theme ride. Question. I noticed at the Troubadour that you had on you had a music stand with a binder on it. I assume it had song lyrics, but you never once looked at it. Answer. I've always had a binder with a binder with lyrics sitting at the back of the stage under the piano, just there if I need to look for something. Of course, it's essential use, essentially useless because if I do heed to, if I do need to find a lyric, I'm not going to be able to get under the piano, flip through the binder, and find it in time. But after COVID, I mean, two years was the longest I'd gone without playing a gig since I was a kid, and when we got into rehearsals for that tour, I was like, at hell. I got a lot of lyrics, you know? Palisades Park, that's like 10 minutes long. And I'm like, why did I write this? Why did I write that all this? So I was just nervous that I wasn't going to remember stuff after those two years. Question. Last night, you let the audience take over for the chorus of Mr. Jones. What are you thinking in those moments? Answer. There's something so galvanizing about an audience singing your song. But Mr. Jones... That's a really high note. I often let the first one go to the audience, but there's a part of me that thinks I'm 59 now. They probably think I can't hit that note anymore. I'm going to sing the rest of them myself. But last night, I had no voice. I'm just getting over a chest infection. I knew I wasn't going to hit it. And a question. So the haters were right? Answer. In this case, absolutely. Question. I went back and read some old Counting Crows reviews in the Times. There's one of a gig you played in Irvine in 1997 that says Duretz is one of the few who can make Jackson, Brown, and Morrissey seem cheery by comparison. Answer, I'm assuming that wasn't a great review. Question, it was not, but that. But does that description square with how you thought of yourself at that time? Answer, well, I had a pretty severe mental illness that I wasn't talking about publicly back then. I spent a lot of time depressed, and clearly the writer got that. But it's a weird thing as an artist to have your life judged solely by people who don't know you and with no sympathy, only ridicule. I got myself locked up at the UCLA Medical Center for a little bit in 2001 because I was having some troubles and just needed to settle things down because I didn't feel safe. And the day I checked in, Mariah Carey checked out, and I remember the media circus that went on with her and how people made fun of her. That's stuck in my head. Question. How are you feeling these days? Answer. Mental illness isn't like breaking your leg. It's closer to a handicap than it is to an injury. 
but at least if you realize what it is, you can spot it when it's going on. You can go, okay, I'm not crazy. My mind is my mind just does this when it happens. And you don't feel like you're losing touch with reality. I started to feel safe talking about it around 2008 when we released Saturday nights and Sunday mornings because I didn't feel like I was circling the drain anymore. But I'm not a spokesperson for us. I really don't feel the responsibility to be everyone's flag bearer for mental illness. Question. You worked at the Viper Room when you moved to L.A. Why was a well-known rock star tending bar, tending bar? Answer. When I got home to North Berkeley from the end of the August tour, touring, this is like January of 1995. The first week was kind of a nightmare. There were kids literally camped out on my lawn. I knew Viper Room owners Sal Jenko and Johnny Depp, and I got a phone call from them where they started to invite me to something. Then they're like, whoa, what's wrong? I explained what was going on, and they put me on hold. I'm sure I've fictionalized this somewhat, but in my memory, they came back five minutes later and said, okay, you have a reservation on the 7 o'clock flight from Oakland to Burbank. Someone will pick you up at the airport, and we got you a room at the Bell Age. It's Kate Moss's 21st birthday, the Viper Room was closed for the night, and we're having a party, you gotta get out of Berkeley. So I did, and I kind of never went home again. Stayed at the Bell Age for a while, then got a bungalow at the Sunset Marquise. Eventually, Shannon, one of the bartenders, found me this house to rent. I go to the Viper every night and hang out. There were the only they were the, they were the only people I knew really. At some point, Shannon had to go to the bathroom or something, and she's like, "Can you handle this?" Question: Did you know how to make drinks? Answer: I learned. Question: Surely you knew who you were. Surely people knew who you were. Answer, which is why it was all the better uh, to be on the other side of the bar. I'm kind of shy, and it gave me something to do. People would come and talk to me, and I didn't have to be wandering around by myself in a crowd. I met girls, and I met Allen Ginsberg, and William Burroughs, and Tom Petty, and the Hughes brothers. Everyone that was doing something interesting in L.A. was there. Question, you left L.A. in the early 2000s for New York. Answer, I came here from the Bay Area because the struggling artist town that I came from wasn't happy with my success. And L.A. is a working artist town. I felt like somebody normal when I got here, but it kind of changed when reality TV came in. There was a culture of famous for being famous that really got tiresome to me. I went to New York and just found myself having more interesting conversations. Mary Louise Parker is one of my best friends since we were young, and she and Billy Crudup were together then. One night, Billy and I went to see Noel Coward's Private Lives. Alan Rickman and Lindsay Duncan were in it. After the show, we went backstage and had drinks in Alan's dressing room. Then we all went out to dinner, and Rosemary Harris came by to, uh, came by the table at one point. He was just incredibly it was this incredibly experienced with these older British actors who were really smart and cool. And I just thought, if I moved to New York, I could have conversations like this. Question. Whereas here you could hang out with the cast of Laguna Beach, answer, or like that 70s show, who are actually really nice people. Well, the ones that aren't in jail. Question. Counting Crow's first few albums came out on David Geffen's label. Ever meet him? Answer. Yeah, sure. He was great. After the band blew up, I was summoned out to his house. Got in the car, drove out to PCH, count up to 20,000 to 20, or 30,000 or whatever the address was. I ring the doorbell on this wall, and eventually the but this butler guy opens the door. Oh, Mr. Duritz, please, come in. 
All at once, I see the bright greens of the lawn and the blue of the ocean, and there's Geffen standing at the end of this long pathway. He greets me, and we sit on this patio off to the side of the house, and they bring lunch to us, which is like a a seared tuna salad. I remember this so vividly because each vegetable in the salad was like the greatest vegetable that I'd ever that had ever been. I'm thinking, does he have specialized farming service who pick each individual tomato? Just an unreal explosion of saladness. Question: What you talking about? Answer: All kinds of stuff. Had taught. He told me about leaving New York to drive to Woodstock with Joni Mitchell, then realizing the traffic was too much, but she's going to write a song anyways. He told me about working with Jackson Brown early on. You know what really struck me? This guy who's done a lot of great in his career. But in his mind, the greatest thing he ever did was the Eagles. I I like the Eagles, but I wouldn't put them at the top. I'm a Flying Burrito Brothers guy, a Graham Parsons guy. But the Eagles sold a gazillion albums and made more money than any of the than all the other wrecks put together. And that was his greatest accomplishment because for him, it's not just a music thing, but a business thing. It was his idea. You guys aren't going to make it on your own. You should make a band together. It's like deciding you should do personal computers and start Apple. Question. You were close to, with Bob Saget, who died last year. What was the essence of your friendship? Answer. I met Bob because my godmother's godmother, my goddaughter's godmother, Laura Laughlin, was on Full House. They'd all come to this show early on. Everyone who knew Bob second, uh, everyone who knew Bob thought we, uh, they were Bob's best friend. He made you feel that way when you were with him, like you were the most important person in the world. It's weird. I've had people in my life die, but I'm never going to get over this one. I'll be in the middle of something and I want to talk to him and realize I'm not going to. It's kind of devastating. Question. You got friends in comedy. Ever try stand-up? Answer. I could never do it. It's the most death-defined performance art there is. I'm in awe of the speed at which those guys' minds work. I'm a smart guy, but not. But I got nothing on that. Question. At the show last night, you had a Badfinger t-shirt on. Now you're wearing a Sunflower Bean shirt. How much thought do you put into your choice of band shirt? La- question. Uh, answer. Last night I was going to... I was going between a bright red Big Star shirt, the Bad Finger one, and a Bowie shirt with the art from Space Oddity. I went with what looked good with my pink shoes. Question. Do you have a ton of band shirts? Answer. I don't have anything else. My biggest bummer about getting on the plane to come here was that my girlfriend brought me a Taylor Swift Midnight shirt that just was a little too tight, so I didn't bring it. I've got to lose a little more weight before I can wear it. Question. It's good to have a goal. Answer, it's literally what I'm working towards, to wear the Tay-Tay shirt. That was What Came After August by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, September 8, 2023. Right, now let's go to an article from CBR.com. And this is called, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah Director Defends Adam Sandler for Casting Daughters. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah director, Sammy Cohen, pushes back on Nipo, uh, Nipo Baby claims against star Adam Sandler in the Netflix comedy. By Andre Joseph for Tuesday, September 5th, 2020, 20, 2023. 
Adam Sandler's You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah director answers the critics of putting his daughters on the screen. In an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, Bat Mitzvah director Sammy Cohen went on the defensive about Sandler casting his teenage daughters Sonny and Sadie into his latest Netflix comedy. In fact, Sandler's movies have always been a family affair. Sandler has a reputation for making movies with his friends, and that's something we all want to do, Cohen said. What I say is, he's still making movies with his friends, but they're his kids. He is the kind of dad who is also your best friend. When it comes to the sort of chatter we're hearing online, I don't really think twice about it because I'm like, I'm going like, yeah, he's doing the same thing he's always done. Sonny and Sadie Sandler had previously performed bit roles in their father's movies and provided voiceover parts in the Hotel Transylvania franchise. Additionally, Sandler's wife Jackie has a supporting role in Bat Mitzvah as the mother of Sadie, uh, Sadie Sandler's best friend. With Sandler's daughters tackling their biggest roles to date, Cohen praised their professionalism and natural comedic talent on camera. They've had roles in other movies and they're familiar with being on set. But one thing that just sticks out, they work harder than most adults I know, Cohen said. They love acting and filmmaking in general. They take such an interest in how the movie is made, and they're both so talented. You are so not invited to my bat mitzvah marks a departure for Sandler, who takes on a supporting role to his daughter Sadie. Based on the 2005 young adult novel by Fiona Rosenblum, it follows Stacey Friedman, Sadie Sandler, with grand bat mitzvah plans that get shattered when her best friend Lydia, Samantha Lorraine, starts going out with her high school crush. In fighting for her crush's attention, Stacy plans to sabotage Lydia's bat mitzvah with some humiliating home video footage. Unlike past Adam Sandler movies, bat mitzvah earned a near-perfect Rotten Tomatoes score of 96%, eclipsing the comedian's previous effort, Hustle. Sandler remains busy with two ambitious projects coming to Netflix. He will be voicing a lizard with a year to live in the animated movie Leo opposite the Mandalorian's Bill Burr. In 2024, Sandler will return to drama in a surprise sci-fi movie opposite Paul Dano and Carrie McMulligan in Spaceman. You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah is now streaming on Netflix. That was, You Are So Not Invited to My Bat Mitzvah director defends Adam Sandler for casting daughters for Andre Joseph for CBR.com, Tuesday, September 5th, 2023. All right, now here is something from Forward.com, the Forward Jewish Independent Nonprofit. This is called A Museum Snubbed Hollywood's Jewish Founders. Its next exhibit hopes to make amends. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures' first Permanent exhibit will explore Hollywood's Jewish roots by Sharon Rosenlieb, September 6, 2023. The Academy Museum of Motion Pictures, which opened two years ago in the heart of Los Angeles, has announced plans for its first permanent exhibition, Hollywoodland Jewish Founders and the Making of a Movie Capital, which will open May 19, 2024, during Jewish American Heritage Month. The announcement made in an exclusive to the Forward comes after the museum confronted serious criticism upon its opening, covered by the Forward, for overlooking the significant role of Jews in creating the American film industry. The museum's initial temporary exhibits focused largely on the works of Asian, Black, and Latinx filmmakers, as well as the making of Citizen Kane and The Wizard of Oz. 
Those temporary exhibits omitted mention of the contributions of the original major studio's Jewish founders, William Fox, Fox Films, Adolf Zucker, Paramount, Harry Albert and Jack Warner, the Warner Brothers, Carl Lamley, Universal, Louis B. Mayer, Metro Golden Mayer, Harry Cohn, Columbia, and David Sarnoff, Radio Keith uh, Orpheum. Mayer was mentioned in the Wizard of Oz exhibit in a revisitation of allegations that he exploited the film's young star, Judy Garland. In Hollywood's first decades, these Jewish men developed moving pictures into America's most popular form of entertainment and a multi-million dollar global industry. As Rolling Stone reported in January 2022, after major museum donors, including film and television producer Chaim Sabin, who, his, who with his wife Cheryl donated $50 million to the museum, protested the lack of Jewish representation alongside Academy members and community stakeholders, museum staff concluded that the foundational story of Hollywood's Jewish pioneers deserved a permanent installation. We never had any desire to exclude or not represent the Jewish founders, Bill Kramer, the museum's former director and president, told The Forward in January 2022. When the museum first shared its intention to craft an exhibit focused on Hollywood's Jewish pioneers, we, 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 long, we long planned on having a temporary exhibit highlighting them, but are now going to make it permanent. Within my family, there are a lot of variations of the Jewish immigrant story, Dara Jaith, the, current, the curator in charge of the Hollywoodland exhibition said in a recent interview at Fanny's, the Academy Museum's in-house restaurant named for Jewish comedian Fanny Bryce. Most of my great-grandparents came over in the wave of Eastern European immigrants escaping the pogroms at the turn of the 20th century. As I read about the Jewish founders of Hollywood, I can't help but see my great-grandparents in their stories. Hollywood then, which is still in development, will involve a multimedia element, including a short-form documentary about the immigrant backstories of Hollywood's pioneering Jewish studio heads, and an immersive projection map highlighting how the film industry shaped Los Angeles between 1902, when the first theater dedicated to playing motion pictures opened, and 1929, when the first Academy Awards ceremony took place. These installations will help build the exhibit's dual narrative of how the Jewish founders, Hollywood dream factories, became synonymous with Los Angeles. We want people to be engrossed in the nuanced story of Hollywood's Jewish immigrant founders, how their lives and careers were defined by their Jewish identities, Jake said. We are committed to telling the truth, Jacqueline Stewart, the museum's new president and director, said in an interview. And it's true that Hollywood's founders were Jewish businessmen who saw their studios as a way to elevate cinema and to make a name for themselves in an environment that was profoundly anti-Semitic. I think the exhibition's narratives of how political and religious oppression and exile moved people around the world will resonate with visitors of many different immigrant backgrounds, she added. And that was a museum snubbed Hollywood's Jewish founders, its next exhibit hopes to make amends by Sharon Rosen Lieb from the Forward.com Jewish Independent Nonprofit for September 6, 2023. And Sharon Rosen Lieb is a former Deputy Attorney General in California's Department of Justice, an award-winning freelance journalist, and contributing writer to the Forward for the Forward and the San Diego Jewish Journal.
Now let's read some articles from JewishJournal.com. And uh, this is called NYU Law Says They Will Not Be Hosting Anti-Zionist Conference on Campus. New York University School of Law has told the journal that they will not be hosting the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism upcoming conference on campus by Aaron Bandler, September 6, 2023. New York University School of Law has told the journal that they will not be hosting the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism's upcoming conference on campus. The ICSZ's website had stated their conference, Battling the IHRA Definition, Theory and Activism, is being held at UC Santa Cruz on October 13th and NYU Law on October 14th. However, a spokesperson for NYU Law told the journal on August 31st, we will not and never have, have never committed to hosting this event. As of publication time, the ICSZ's website states that the conference is being held at NYU, not NYU Law, but a spokesperson for NYU told the journal on September 1st that we are unaware of any space requests related to this event other than the submitted, the one submitted to the law school by a student group. This group, student group had, in fact, never received confirmation for the space they sought and have been told that space is not available. David Bernstein, founder of the Jewish Institute for Liberal Values and author of Woke Antisemitism, told the journal that the NYU Cinema Studies Department has since revoked their sponsorship of the ICSZ conference. Dana Poland, who chairs the NYU Cinema Studies Department, confirmed this to the journal, and that Bernstein and JILV Director of Academic Affairs Marcy Braverman Goldstein sent a letter making a similar request to UC Santa Cruz. The August 30 letter obtained by the journal notes that UCSC Center for Racial Justice and Critical Race Ethnic Studies Department are both listed as sponsors for the event. The conference planners are requiring participants to take a political litmus test as a co condition of admittance, Bernstein and Goldstein wrote. The promotional material states that all registrants will be asked to confirm their agreement with the points of unity beforehand. The first point of unity states that Zionism is a settler colonial racial project. Like the U.S., Israel is a settler colonial state. The Institute opposes Zionism and colonialism. In other words, any student or faculty member who does not share that ideological stance is not invited to attend this university-sponsored program. Welcoming comrades who are involved in this work underscores the planner's intention to exclude based on political viewpoint. Bernstein and Goldstein argue that such a litmus test violates university policy and urge the university to immediately withdraw sponsorship from the event. Stand with us CEO and co-founder Roz Rothstein, uh, SADUF Legal Department Chair Yale Learman, and Center for Combating Anti-Semitism Director Carly Gamil sent a similar letter to UCSC on Friday, arguing that UCSC's department's sponsorships of the ICSZ's Point of Unity litmus test would violate state and federal law. Stand With Us also argued that the ICSZ's conference is anti-Semitic and divisive. ICSZ and its conference exist to oppose Zionism, the existence of Israel, and the Jews who support the movement, Rothstein, Litterman, and Gamow wrote. In studying Zionism, ICSZ dehumanizes Jews by falsely comparing a central component of their identity to some of the greater evils of the world, 
settler colonialism, racism, and white supremacy, while disregarding the fact that Jews are a diverse ethnic and religious minority who are the target of white supremacists and others, racism, violence, and even genocide. Stand With Us called on UCSC to denounce the conference and require that the ICSC remove their points of unity litmus test. Scott Hernandez Jason, Assistant Vice Chancellor of UC Santa Cruz, said in a statement to the journal, UC Santa Cruz does not endorse the upcoming conference organized by the Institute for the Critical Study of Zionism. We note that the conference organizers no longer require individuals to confirm that uh, their agreement with the Institute's points of unity before registering. The ICSC's website currently states, we invite you to read the Institute's points of unity, which are the basis for the Institute's research community. Hernandez Jason added, we are vigorous proponents of free inquiry and the free exchange of ideas and believe that more speech is the best approach to countering speech we find troubling. Both policy, both by policy and in practice, the university rigorously honors the freedom to present the widest range of viewpoints, irrespective of agreement on those viewpoints. Amid a sharp rise in the anti-Semitism in the United States, we urge our campus community to understand the impact of their individual views and the expressions of those views on others in the community. The ICSZ did not respond to the journal's request for comment. That was NYU Law says they will not be hosting anti-Zionist conference on campus by Aaron Bandler, September 6, 2023. All right, here is another one. This is called Neo-Nazis Gather in Orlando, Shout Jews Will Not Replace Us. More than 50 people reportedly attended this rally, which the groups referred to as the March of the Red Shirts, by Aaron Bandler, September 6, 2023. A group of neo-Nazis gathered in Orlando, Florida on Saturday and reportedly shouted, among other things, Jews Will Not Replace Us. NBC News and Insider reported that the white supremacist group Blood Tribe and Goyim Defense League also chanted, We are everywhere, white power, and heal Hitler, as they waved swastika flags at Cran Roots Park in Altamonte Springs. More than 50 people reportedly attended this rally, which the groups referred to as the March of the Red Shirts. Earlier on Saturday, other neo-Nazi groups reportedly held a similar rally outside of Walt Disney World's Disney Springs, Walt Disney World's Disney Springs. Altamonte Springs Police Department senior police officer Deanna DiPaolo said in a statement to the Orlando Sentinel, "Our police officers were ready and available to respond appropriately to any potential public safety threat, while also being mindful of constitutional freedom of speech. Although the message was disturbing, no actions rose to the level of arrest." The Orange County Sheriff's Office said in a statement to NBC News regarding the rally outside of Disney Springs, we know these groups demonstrate in high-profile areas in order to agitate and incite people with anti-Semitic symbols and slurs. The Orange County Sheriff's Office deplores hate speech in any form, but people have the First Amendment right to demonstrate. What these groups do is revolting and condemned in the strongest way by Sheriff John Mina in the, and the Sheriff's Department. They are looking for attention, and specifically, media attention. The United States Holocaust Museum posted on X, formerly known as Twitter, that neo-Nazism on public display in Florida is deeply alarming. History teaches what can happen if it is allowed to flourish unchecked. Learn more about the origins of some of the words 
and, and, and symbols on display. Jewish groups also denounced the neo-Nazi groups. Appalling to see Nazi flags and such raw displays of hashtag anti-Semitism and hashtag racism in Florida yesterday, only one week after the fatal hate crime in Jacksonville. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt quoted on X. Elected leaders on both sides should denounce this activity and stop the normalization of hate. On August 26, a gunman shot and killed three black people before killing himself at a Dollar General store in Jacksonville, in the Jacksonville neighborhood. Jacksonville Sheriff T.K. Waters told CNN that the gunman, who was white, was driven by racial animus at the, as the gunman, hated blacks, and I think he hated just about everyone that wasn't white. The American Jewish Committee similarly posted on X, a grotesque display of hate in Florida yesterday as white supremacists paraded with symbols of anti-Semitism and bigotry. Their chants of white power and Jews will not replace us are a, are a chilling reminder of the danger these groups pose to society. We need leaders at every level loudly condemning this hate and anti-Semitism. That was... Neo-Nazis gather in Orlando, shout Jews will not replace us, by Aaron Bandler, September 6, 2023. And here's an article in a follow-up to a story we read earlier on. This is called ADL Response to Elon Musk, Profoundly Disturbing. Greenblatt argued that the real issue isn't that the ADL or the threat of a frivolous lawsuit, but the safety of the Jewish people in the face of increasing, intensifying anti-Semitism by Aaron Bandler, September 6, 2023. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt said in a statement on Tuesday that Elon Musk's recent posts on X, formerly known as Twitter, targeting the ADL, are profoundly disturbing. Jewish Telegraphic Agency reported that Musk, who owns X, posted at least 25 times about the ADL over the last several days, which included liking a post from Irish white nationalist Keith Woods, who has reportedly referred to himself as a raging anti-Semite in a deleted 2019 tweet, including the hashtag ban the ADL. Musk also accused the ADL of being responsible for most of our revenue loss. To clear our platform's name on the matter of anti-Semitism, it looks like we have no choice but to file a defamation lawsuit against the Anti-Defamation League. Oh, the irony. Musk posted on X. He also wrote on the platform that he's pro-free speech, but against anti-Semitism of any kind and that he would not ban the ADL from X unless they break the law. Additionally, Musk claimed in a post on X that the ADL, because they are so aggressive in their demands to ban social media accounts for even minor infrictions, are ironically the biggest generators of anti-Semitism on this platform. In a statement posted on the ADL's website, Greenblatt said it is profoundly disturbing that Elon Musk spent the weekend engaging with a highly toxic anti-Semitic campaign on his platform. A campaign started by an unrepentant bigot that then was heavily promoted by individuals such as white supremacist Nick Fuentes, Christian nationalist Andrew Torba, conspiracy theorist Alec Jones, and others. Finally, we saw the campaign manifest in the real world when masked men marched in Florida on Saturday brazenly waving flags adorned with swastikas and chanting, ban the ADL. Greenblatt argued the real issue isn't the ADL or the threat of a frivolous lawsuit, but the safety of the Jewish people in the face of increasing, intensifying anti-Semitism. Musk is engaging with elevating these anti-Semites at a time 
when ADL is tracking a surge of bomb threats and, and swatting attacks of synagogues and Jewish institutions, dramatic levels of anti-Semitic propaganda being littered throughout the Jew Jewish and non-Jewish residential communities, and extremists marching openly through the streets in Nazi gear, Greenblatt continued. All of this is happening in a context of the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents that ADL has tracked in more than 40 years. And just two weeks away from the Jewish holidays of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And so, this behavior is not just alarming nor reckless. It is flat out dangerous and deeply irresponsible. We need responsible leaders to lead, to stop inflaming hatred, and to step back from the brink before it's too late. Greenblatt also appeared on CNBC's Squawk Box on Wednesday, explaining that the hashtag ban the ADL started after Greenblatt's August 30 post on X about his meeting with ex-CEO Linda Yaccarino. We're used to this at the ADL. We regularly let get uh, attacked by the right and the left, Greenblatt said. But this campaign went viral very quickly, with white supremacists, hardened anti-Semites, and other people spreading it across the service. It literally was a trending topic over the course of the weekend. Greenblatt proceeded to say that he doesn't think Musk is anti-Semitic, nor does he think X is an anti-Semitic platform. Hate speech is the price of free speech, Greenblatt said. But let's acknowledge that when Elon Musk and the platform bring people, hardened anti-Semites, back on, when they validate their rantings, when they algorith algorithmically amplify them and allow it to spread, I have to deal with, as the head of the ADL, real-world consequences. He proceeded to point out the historic rise of anti-Semitism over the past few years and the recent incidents of swatting synagogues and bomb threats against Jewish institutions as well as the neo-Nazis openly marching in Florida. Our community is vulnerable, Greenblatt said. People are on edge. And when Elon Musk is amplifying these people, it's very problematic. Greenblatt then denied that the ADL was talking to advertisers. We did call for a pause back in November after the acquisition, and since the initial statement, we are doing what we are doing is engaging with the management of the company, X, trying to make it better, he said. Separately, Musk shared a screenshot of, on X of an ADL tweet in November that stated that the organization was joining dozens of other groups to ask advertisers to pause Twitter's spending because we are profoundly concerned about anti-Semitism and hate on the platform. Jonathan at ADL kicked off a massive Twitter boycott campaign less than a week after the acquisition closed. Musk posted on Wednesday, literally nothing has changed about the site. Our U.S. revenue is still 60% uh, down from that campaign, but slowly improving. Some are defending the ADL in their public feud with Musk. Like at ADL, the American Jewish community and the global Jewish community have been fighting rising anti-Semitism online and in the public square, a goal all social media companies should share. American Jewish Committee CEO Ted Dutch, D-E-U-T-C-H, posted on X. Online platforms <clears throat> must realize that pronouncements against anti-Semitism by senior executives, in this case Elon Musk, aren't enough to prevent its spread. Not when 69% of U.S. Jews experienced anti-Semitism online in the past year. He added that creating a reporting mechanism to specifically identify anti-Semitism will help build a welcoming and safe virtual town square. Pointing out the rampant anti-Semitism on X is not controlling anyone or threatening X's business. Platforming bigotry is. The Simon Weisenthal Center said in a statement, 
From the moment that Elon Musk acquired Twitter, the Simon Weisenfeld Center, a trailblazer in combating online hate and terrorism, asked to meet with him to detail our concerns about the leveraging of Twitter by anti-Semites and violent anti-Israel groups and individuals. Our efforts and those of scores of other Jewish organizations focused on these issues were met with virtual silence. The failure to adopt a robust policy in this area left the social media platform open to Kanye West's relentless hateful rants against the Jewish people that impacted on tens of millions of users. Now amidst surging anti-Semitic hate crimes in the U.S. fueled by relentless Jew hatred on social media, Musk chooses to threaten to launch a lawsuit not against anti-Semites, but against the ADL. They added, Mr. Musk, this isn't leadership. It's a display of arrogance for which our community loses whatever the outcome. The SWC reiterates its call for X to meet and begin the long overdue process of degrading, not upgrading the use of X by anti-Semites and haters. International League Forum CEO Arsena Ostrovsky posted on X, Twitter has long been a cesspool of anti-Semitism. But the campaign targeting hashtag ADL now has unleashed an unprecedented torrent of Jew hatred. Though white supremacists might be driving this, responsibility rests with hashtag Elon Musk for opening and amplifying this floodgate of hate. Stop Anti-Semitism simply wrote, we have no words, in response to Musk's post that X could file a lawsuit against the ADL. Zionist Organization of America, National President Morton A. Klein, on the other hand, told Breibart News that he is supportive of Musk's concerns about the ADL. The ADL almost never condemns left-wing anti-Semites, yet has defended radical left-wing Israel hater and ADL funder George Soros and praised Jew-hating Israel bashing basher rep Elon Omar, Democrat of Minnesota, for her commitment to do a more just world. Others were critical of both Musk and the ADL. Karis Rea, follower fellow at the uh, Jewish Leadership Project, told One America News. Elon himself sometimes responds, to approve, uh, responds approvingly to people who are known anti-Semites. This hashtag, ban the ADL, is not something that Elon Musk as a free speech advocate should be promoting. And it's a campaign that's been taken up by both anti-Zionists on the left as well as white supremacists. Maria argued that the criticism against the ADL is well-deserved not because the ADL is a Jewish organization, but precisely because they've abandoned their mission as a Jewish organization. They no longer are committed to protecting Jews. They've become a partisan racket and mouthpiece of the Democratic Party. She later claimed in the segment that the ADL has decided that Musk is their enemy, not the other way around. So I don't think we should expect Elon Musk to not comment on that. Seth Mandel, executive director of the Washington Examiner, posted on X, the, Groip, the Gripers tweeting, ban the ADL, are bad people with bad intentions and bad designs. Don't be fooled. Don't consider their argument. They are ghouls who hate you. No nuance. The ADL defines the term Groiper as being a loose network of alt-right figures who are vocal supporters of white supremacists and America First podcaster Nick Fuentes. I've written more than anyone on the problems of the new ADL under Greenblatt from a Jewish communal perspective. Most people here know about the ADL's campaign against me, Mandel added on X. But the ADL and I are arguing over how to keep Jews alive. The Groypers want us all gone. He later wrote in the same thread on X, 
Did the ADL make a huge mistake in joining the call for advertising boycott before Musk even had a chance to get his land legs? Unquestionably. Was ADL responsible for the boycott or for what became of Twitter under Musk? No. So we agree the one Jewish org is being scapegoated. And that was ADL response to Elon Musk profoundly disturbing by Aaron Bandler from uh, for September 6, 2023. Okay, let's go on to the columnist section of jewishjournal.com. And uh, this one is called Want to Support Israel's Democracy? Support People Who Like Democracy. We have a stake in the future of Israel and Zionism, and it is bo in both Israeli and American Jews' best interest to remain both democratic. By Blake Flayton, September 6, 2023. I was happy to see a letter published in the Times of Israel a few weeks ago from respected Israeli authors and thinkers Yossi Klein Halevi, Daniel Gordas, and Matty Friedman. All three names are giants in Jewish and anti-Semitic and Zionist circles and their besieging of American Jews to join the Israeli protest movement to oppose Netanyahu and his government of extremists was as necessary as it was persuasive. They, were powerfully they powerfully declare, diaspora support for Israel has traditionally taken the form of support for its government. But now the greatest threat facing Israel is its government. Jews in the diaspora can no longer support Israel without asking which Israel they are supporting. In a previous column, I expressed my support for American Jews becoming more vocal and active in the protest movement, so I will not repeat all the reasons why I agree with Halevi, Gordas, and Friedman in this piece. Instead, I will focus on the rebuttal from Jonathan Tobin, editor-in-chief of Jewish News Syndicate, entitled, Want to Support Israel's Democracy? then respect democratic elections. Before I even glanced at Tobin's piece, I knew its thesis. It has become a favorite talking point of not only the conservative religious-aligned right, but also Zionist centrists wading into arguments over judicial reform to assert repeatedly that because one side won Israel's last election, because one side clinched, clinched 64 mandates in the Knesset, then anything this government chooses to do is ipso facto democratic and that democratically structured societies cannot possibly lead themselves democratically into illiberal regimes. The Jewish people of all people should simply know better. I will therefore counter-argue Tobin's counter-argument in this column and explain what I have termed Trump Zionism, which lies beneath the surface of many pro-reform arguments. First, in any conversation about judicial reform, it is negligent to not center the people who are pushing for its enactment with the most vigor. Tobin states in his piece that judicial reform was a widely understood campaign plank of the victorious coalition, implying that Netanyahu and Aryeh Derry campaigned for the overturning of the reasonableness clause with equal strength compared to Tabezalil Smotrich and Simcha Rothman of the religious Zionist list. This is simply not accurate. While it is, of course, true that the mainstream right, including Netanyahu, have called from amorphous reforms to the judiciary before the election, Eliav Brewer in the Jerusalem Post notes that the religious Zionist party was the only coalition party to present a clear plan for the legal system called law and justice in a press conference on October 15, two weeks before the election. 
The plan included all of the current plan's provisions and many more, including the cancellation of the breach of trust crime, which Netanyahu is currently standing trial. The Likud made a point not to endorse these plans, but also uh, to uh, not oppose them. It was too politically toxic to endorse such a clear kneecapping of the judiciary, considering that just after the reforms were officially announced, when the coalition had been formed, only 53% of Likud voters reported to support them in their entirety, with 27%, a significant minority, reporting that they were concerned for Israeli democracy. As Likud is by far the largest party in the government, campaigning on reform was accurately deemed too much of a risk. This is further proven by the few and far between pro-reform protests uh, the uh, country has seen compared to the anti-reform demonstrations. The strongest showings were in Jerusalem at the end of April and in Tel Aviv at the end of July. For both rallies, large numbers of participants were bussed in from settlements in the West Bank religious Zionist strongholds. It bears repeating that expressions of support for the judicial overhaul cannot be salvaged from sovereign Israel or even from the Likud. Rather, enthusiasm must be outsourced from afar, the very same thing the right has accused of the left. Regardless of which, uh, which parties in the coalition made more of a point to support reform while campaigning, it matters not to Tobin, who repeatedly states how Netanyahu's government was elected democratically in a free and fair election that is unique to Israel in the, re and in the region, and therefore the government reserves the right to pursue whatever policy it chooses. He declares, Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition won a clear majority in last November's election to the Knesset. First things first, how true is this statement? Out of all voters in the 2022 election, approximately 2.3 million people voted for the parties that are currently comprised that currently comprise the coalition. While 2.5 million people did not, this includes parties that did not cross the Knesset electoral threshold. As a percentage, this means a mere 48.4% of the country voted for the coalition, which is not, as Tobin states, a clear majority. Nevertheless, because of quirks in Israel's political structure, the coalition received 64 mandates in the Knesset by way of established rules. Despite this, the broader right's assertion that the decisions of a democratically elected government are automatically democratic by representing the will of the majority, which, as proven, is hardly a majority at all defies most modern understanding of political science. It also ignores an extensive history of democratically elected leaders dismantling their nation's liberal order in an attempt to bend power toward illiberal ideologues. Considering the people pushing harder for hardest for judicial reform, there is every reason to believe Israel is currently barreling down this track. Benjamin Netanyahu's government is composed of men and a few women who do not like democracy. Etamar ben Givor does not mind espousing his authoritarian outlook to the public. Bezalel Smotrich advocates for full sovereignty over Palestinian communities in the West Bank, but opposes granting their residents the right to vote. And United Torah Judaism and Shas explicitly favor policies that would segregate men from women in the public square and would further infringe upon LGBT rights. To his credit, Tobin acknowledges these forces. He concedes that the structure of the Supreme Court is not sexy enough to get hundreds of thousands of Israelis to take to the streets for 34 straight weeks. He acknowledges 
that the unrest in Israel is fundamentally a clash of ideology, a duel over whether the state will remain democratic and yet curiously fails to understand that reasonable, unreasonable people took away the reasonableness clause because they plan to do unreasonable things. You cannot separate judicial reform from the ideas of those demanding its enactment. Not only is this crucial relationship not acknowledged, but Toma goes on to argue that rather than people who have made their disdain for democracy transparent, it is the protest movement that is fundamentally undemocratic because it very clearly seeks to elect a new government. Surprise, an opposition doesn't like the government. To bolster this contention, Tobin points to the period in the 1980s and 90s when Supreme Court Chief Justice Aaron Barak established Israel's system of basic laws, which from then on would be considered Israel's quasi-constitution. Tobin called this a revolutionary power grab, an attempt by Israel's left to seize and consolidate control from the right who had begun to repeatedly win national elections. Therefore, the protest movement is only hiding behind the word democracy and is really marching to secure a majority Ashkenazi left-wing Supreme Court that renders Israel more authoritarian and the individual Israeli with less representation. The basic laws specified individual rights for Israeli citizens and the relationship between the branches of government, just like foundational staples of liberal democracies all over the world. More importantly, the court could now practice judicial review over Knesset decisions that contradicted basic laws. For example, the basic law of human dignity and liberty, which without enforcement is hardly a law at all. And when a state exercises authority over an occupied territory, it is essential to avoid tribunals in the International Criminal Court. Tobin is correct when he says that this move was motivated, if only in part, by a political shakeup in Israel, the incipient dominance of the right wing that began with Menachem Begin and Likud's victory over Ahavodah in 1977. Yet partisan leanings do not render a court's decision undemocratic. Conservatives have little trouble understanding this when conservative justices rule in their favor. For example, as Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court from 1953 to 69, Earl Warren oversaw the eradication of racial segregation in schools and in marriage, enshrined rights and protections for criminal defendants, and made it so public schools could not force their students to study the Bible. The American right ceaselessly vilified the Warren court. They protested in the streets, campaigned on ending the court's corruption, and hurled accusations of judicial activism, tyranny of unelected bodies, repression of the elites, and of communist conspiracy. Not unlike Caroline Glick of Jewish News Syndicate, who last week accused the protest movement of being a front for Stalinism. Yet despite the boiling culture war that ravaged America in the 1960s, the Warren Court oversaw the objective progress to a more liberal government and society. No respected figures in American politics today advocate for racial segregation. With this in mind, is it really the structural aspects of Israel's Supreme Court that upsets Israel's right wing? Or is it that the court is entrusted with the power to review laws based on human dignity and liberty? I would argue it is the latter, not the former. Regardless, the right has precisely crafted their argument to appear opposed to the Supreme Court's power on political principle and not the implications 
of this power on the democratic future of Israel. A useful method of understanding this maneuver is with the term Trump Zionism. At the beginning of last week's Republican presidential primary debate, Fox News played the music video of a song that had reached number one on the charts across America, The Rich Men North of, of Richmond. The song is a composition of populist grievance against politicians and the elite, whom singer Oliver Anthony Lamets have taxed the working class to death and have attempted to control the minds of small-town folk like him. Regardless of Anthony specifying this week that the song has no partisan angle, Republicans seized upon the song, designating it as a conservative anthem against the New York liberals, carpetbaggers anyone, who wish to swindle and strip freedom away from their blue-collar compatriots. This, I would argue, is precisely the strategy of the Israeli right in the debate over judicial reform. Folks, it looks like we are about to come to the end of another edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jews right here in the city, the state, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.